case. Hope Not Hates are basically controlling Britain. Hope Not Hate, an alluring name for those more concerned about social justice than truth. These backwards, these backward thinking, virtue, sick virtue signaling, fake news crate. Yeah. Hello and welcome to the latest Hope Not Hate podcast. Thanks for joining us again. Um, this is a pretty special one that we're all really excited about. This is um, a special podcast to mark the launch of our new book. Um, it's called The International Alt-Right, Fascism for the 21st Century. It's come out today on Routledge, um, available in all good bookstores, or some bookstores, should we say. And um, yeah, it kind of tells the history of the alt-right. And we're actually uh, having a quick drink to celebrate. And we're in the George IV pub here in central London, in Hoburn, uh, on the campus of the London School of Economics. And we're actually here because I'm joined with Patrick Hermanson, who I first met in this exact pub, I don't know how many years ago now, was it 2016? And that started off the kind of our journey as a, as a research team, I hope not hate, into the alt-right really. And the book is published today, but it's written by myself, it's written by Patrick and two of our colleagues, David Lawrence and Simon Murdoch. Um, hello, Patrick. Hi, Joe. <laughs> so we met in this exact pub, funny enough, uh, 2016, when we were starting, and we sat in this pub and we were starting to talk about the alt-right and this new movement that we felt was emerging or, or that was kind of already existence at the time. It had been, you were talking about the period of Trump. And you were just turned up in London. You'd, I'd got your contact details from a friend of ours at a, an organisation in Sweden called Expo that we know. And they'd said that you were coming to London and would I meet you for a coffee or for a drink and have a chat. And that conversation that day changed a huge amount for us, I think, as a research team. And the result of it, in some ways, is this book which has been published today. So I just thought I'd start off before we get into a bit about what's in the book and why we think the book's interesting. Um, what you remember about that day and, and what what's happened since for you like really since that day in the last few years yeah I mean that was a strange day I'm, I don't think either one of us knew really what that would lead to we, we were talking about this project but it wasn't as big as it would turn out later on and uh, we did talk about it all right but it wasn't the central thing it was this dangerous far-right group in London and we didn't know that much about it um, but over time that turned into this infiltration um, which which now recently came out as a documentary um, and it part of it also got into a big report that um, the research team released on the alt-right um, it changed a lot for us I think um, we started seeing how um, these traditional far-right groups started to use the term alt-right to describe themselves so while I was on the inside of, of the London Forum which is what, what the organization was called um, they, they released new business cards uh, where they started describing themselves as alt-right um, and that was one of the things that started um, to raise our interest in, in, in this um, yeah, label or movement um, and, and simultaneously we started seeing it in, in many different places uh, in many different far-right movements which we described with other terms before um, yeah, and, and, and that's what, what um, provoked kind of uh, deeper research into, into that movement. And I think, I mean, one of the things that was, was funny, of course, is that, you know, originally when we met, we were talking about maybe you could take some photographs for Hope's Not, not Hate or, you know, go to some demonstrations, etc. And of course, that then turned into this huge year-long infiltration of the alt-right, which was partly covered in a report we released in 2017 called The International Alt-Right was obviously then all covered in more detail in the in the big documentary that came out and was on television over the last few years and it was on Amazon Prime and stuff which tells that story that you, of you going into the alt-right first in Europe and then of course into North America you know spending time with a lot of the key figures 
in the field. But one of the things that's really interesting, I think, about this book that we've put out today is that all four authors at some point in the last 10 years have spent time with organisations and individuals that became the alt-right or were kind of actively calling themselves the alt-right. Ranging back, I think I remember back to 2012, 2013, where some of us were going to events in America that were, you know, National Policy Institute events with Richard Spencer. Um, and, and what it was is that because of this book comes from a perspective of individuals that have spent time or infiltrated alt-right groups around the world is... I remember after a while, we were all kind of talking to each other about this movement. It was in the press, it was everywhere. You know, you'd find it in every newspaper, especially with the election of Trump, uh, all the links around that. And a lot of the stuff that was being talked about and written about was, didn't really tally with what we were finding on the ground within these groups that we were all inside at the time. And we decided, you know, as a group, that we needed to have that conversation. So why is it that a lot of the journalism that we're reading about, this so-called alt-right movement, doesn't sound or look like what we understand this movement to be and and that started off as the report and now this book is the culmination of that where we're essentially trying to set out what we think the alt-right is how it works how it operates um, and this isn't like a story of these infiltrations you know there's your documentary that has that element to it this is much more kind of saying this is what the alt-right is this is how it operates this is what it believes um, and this is where we think it's going to go in the future a little bit um, one thing I'd be interested, you know, and it's now out, and I'd be interested in hearing your thoughts on is, kind of, you were inside this movement for longer than anyone. Um, what do you think the alt-right is? How do, how, you, know, do, you know, how do we define it? What do you think about it? You know, what do you think the alt-right is as a movement? I mean, our definition of, of the alternative right uh, is very focused on this notion about identity uh, and the threat to identity. So we define it as uh, a movement that at the core uh, feels like the white male identity is, is threatened by um, liberalism, feminism and progressive uh, ideas. Um, the extreme section of it that, that I was inside and that most of us have, 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 have been inside um, takes that down to race. Um, while another section of it talks about it in terms of, of culture um, and in this book we try to distinguish between those two and, and also show that often um, it's not a, an entirely clear line um, mm. but it is a useful um, division and a way of thinking about it. And I think that's what's so interesting about the alt-right in some ways is that it's been, it's one of those terms, like fascism itself in some ways, it's been used to call, you know, everyone's been called a fascist over the last hundred years and all sorts of groups. Uh, and the same with the alt-right, it ranged from people calling Donald Trump alt-right through to neo-Nazi groups alt-right. And we were saying, well, is this actually a movement? Is this actually, a, is this just a rebranding of an existing movement? And I think one of the things we found over the last few years was that, yes, there is this, as you say, this kind of core central notion of what the alt-right is the concept that white identity is under threat from kind of liberal, progressive, enlightenment, democratic values, using things like political correctness, etc., to attack either kind of white males or a more cultural sense in terms of Western civilization. When you have this notion that there is this core set of beliefs, it does allow you to see it as an umbrella ideology. Um, one of the things that you've looked at really closely over the last few years is how the alt-right does business online, you know, because uh, uh, the alt-right, of course, in some ways, it is a rebranding. It is, you know, many of the ideas, there's nothing new in their anti-Semitism or their race politics or their Islamophobia or homophobia or misogyny, but there is something new about the way they do business. Uh, and we define it in the book with these kind of three elements, which is there's the American far right, there's this European roots of this philosophical movement called the New Right or the Nouvelle Droite, 
going back to the 60s in France. But there's this third element which you've been really focused on, which is we call online antagonistic communities in the book. Um, what, tell us a little bit about what that is. So how, how, what are these movements? How are they actually doing business? Yeah, I mean, this idea of identity and, and what it thinks about, about race and so on, it, it's not everything the alt-right is, it's also how it operates, like you say, and, and where those um, methods and strategies come from. Uh, and some of that comes from distinctively not far-right places. Uh, it, it's uh, online communities, um, trolling communities and image board communities that are not directly related to the far-right but have become so over time. Um, and I've looked a lot at how um, the alt-right and modern far-right movements use um, strategies um, developed outside of it. So trolling, which is a way of um, causing outrage online and kind of exploiting online mediums and kind of the amb ambiguity of, of um, intention, what is the intention between other users online, what, what are they saying, do they actually believe this, or are they just making a joke? Um, and the altar has been very good at um, making use of, of that ambiguity in order to protect itself. They could uh, pose something very offensive but then roll back and say that was just a joke. Um, but also to make use of that um, offensive, that, that, that possibility of being incredibly offensive and over the line online in order to cause outrage and to attract media attention by, by being uh, incredibly uh, racist online but, and thereby kind of getting its word out there and getting its name out there and, and attracting new people and also attracting individuals who um, like this notion of, of, of transgressing boundaries. Um, and it's attractive to, to young people um, and these kind of other communities online um, that were previously maybe not so political. And I think that's one of the really, really interesting bits of this movement is the, the way it does politics is, is so important. This kind of heavily ironized, this kind of online way it does it. And, you know, and I understand why many of the books we were reading at the time um, when we were trying to better understand the alt-right, not just the books, but as I say, all this journalism, and we were looking at the movements that you were inside at the time, the information you were feeding back into Hope Not Hate about what they were doing and how they were doing it. And some of the literature that was out there was just saying, that this is nothing new, it's purely a rebranding. That's all it is, they've changed their name. But actually, for those of us who'd looked at the far-right for a long time, and understood that there was, of course, these continuities, certainly some of the individuals had rebranded and some of the groups rebranded, the way they were trying to propagate their politics was incredibly, well, not incredibly new, but it was new. And it was essentially kind of fascism for the digital age. And I think that's why in the book we called it fascism for the 21st century, because the commonalities, of course, are strong. The parallels, this unbroken thread, these, these ideas do have their, you know, go all the way back to the post-war period and into the 20s and 30s, especially around race and anti-Semitism. But the way they were doing it with this ironised kind of online politics was new and it was different. And the other element I thought was really interesting is obviously you went into the alt-right firstly in the UK. You joined groups in the United Kingdom that started to call themselves alt-right. But eventually you went to North America. You went over and you spent time with some of the big players on the west coast of America and then in New York. And a lot of the books that have been written about it, a lot of the articles that have been written about it, really saw the alt-right as just this American thing. You know, it was an American phenomenon because a lot of the big players were American. But actually, coming from a European perspective, it became really clear to me and, and all of us, I think, on the research team that 
a lot of the ideas they were talking about were European. Like they weren't, they weren't American. And I mean, I always go back to this event I went to in Washington DC back in 2013, which was the National Conference of the NPI, the National Policy Institute, which is run by Richard Spencer, who for many years was kind of the figurehead of the whole movement. And I went over, this is kind of prior to what we were calling it the alt-right. You know, we weren't really calling it the alt-right at the time, but I went over because there was a lot of Europeans going over to this event and we wanted to know what was going on. And the keynote speaker was a guy called de Benoit, this French philosopher who had been around and started in like 1968 in this thing called the Nouvelle Droite, the New Right. And they propagated these ideas of what they called metapolitics, for example. So not going through elections to change society, but like changing society through propaganda and through conferences and through books and through art and culture, etc. Um, and some of these ideas like ethno-pluralism, essentially racial separatism. Uh, and some of these ideas were being really talked about. And I always remember that event, it was called After the Fall. And I remember coming back to Hope Not Hate saying, you wouldn't believe these guys, a bunch of cranks in North America, all these European fascists have gone over for it. And they genuinely believe they're on the cusp of changing the world. You know, and they're all sat in this you know, strange room in Washington, D.C. By 2017, or 2016-17 when we met, that after the fall had, had certainly sounded much less ridiculous mm. with the rise of Trump with the rise of Steve Bannon talking about the alt-right and, and referencing people like Julius Avola and a lot of these philosophers that they were interested in. Um, but it was certainly international. You know, I mean, tell us a little bit about how international it was because you use those networks to get from one continent to another. Yeah, I think one of the fascinating aspects for me was that I, I got inside in this London-based, quite old fascist group that, um, whose kind of membership was uh, upper middle age and, and up really. Um, there were some young people there as well, but, but the majority of the members were, were, were much older. Um, and the group had been around for a long time and it was based in London. Um, but I used kind of the, the legitimacy and trust I gained in that group to get to the US. Um, because this network is incredibly connected online. Um, this kind of extreme edge of the far right who um, they see themselves as intellectuals, they, they, they do see kind of the, the value in, in building international ties. Um, so they knew each other really well. Many of them were personal friends, they had met at, at, at the London Forum, but the other conferences, they travel to talk and to, to learn um, and exchange ideas. Um, so when I got to, to the US, um, and I was actually invited uh, while in London to go to, to a specific conference in the US, but when I got there I could get into so many other movements and, and groups and conferences and, and just meet people for coffee because I knew people in London. They knew each other. It's an incredibly um, international movement and, and because that's how they see that's how they see the struggle. Uh, it's not about nations, it's, it's about um, the white race for them. And I think this is one of the things that we were really keen about, why we, essentially why we started writing the book, was we felt that internationalness of this, of this movement was being overlooked a little bit. Mm. And partly it was, you know, you, have the, you do have these kind of traditional groups in each country that were preoccupied with the nationalism within their country, but you also have this band of activists now that are primarily online, often anonymous, using websites, blogs, forums like 4chan, 8chan, these sorts of places that can be sat anywhere in the world. I always remember back to when an Australian alt-right activist uh, made a comment under a Le Pen video where she thanked the online militants for their help in the French elections and they were from all over the world. Yeah. The idea that you've got individuals could be sat in Australia, Japan, London, America, China, you name it, 
um, engaging in this sort of politics online, it's a fundamentally transnational movement. Um, it's not just a collection of national organisations. Some of these people do perceive the threat that they feel they're fighting in an international sense, whether or not that on the most extreme ends is a threat to the white race, or on the more moderate end, if moderate's the right word, as a threat to Western culture, or the Occident, or the identity. Like, it is a really transnational movement, and that's why in this book there's chapters on Japan, and the alt-right, written by Simon Murdoch. There's chapters on India, written by David Lawrence. There's chapters on Russia, which you wrote, um, that look at this movement and say, how is it that this movement is interacting with all these places? And if we'd had space and time, we could have done all sorts of other countries. We could have looked at South America. We could have looked, you name it, it's, it's out there. These movements exist across borders. Um, one of the things also I kind of wanted to tap into is there's a section in the book that looks at the movement's attitude towards certain prejudices. Um, there's towards anti-Semitism, towards racial science uh, and racism, which has become a really big thing in the last few weeks. This big discussion in the UK after it turns out that one of the government advisors seemed to have been talking about eugenics and race science. Um, but there's also chapters on homophobia and, and a big section on attitudes to women and sexuality. Um, why do you think, or do you, I mean, why is it that we decided to put that in there? Why is it that you, you wrote on some of those chapters? Um, Tell me a little bit about the attitude of the alt-right towards race, or race, gender, sexuality. I think there, there are lots to say on these issues, and of course the far-right um, generally um, has, has long been homophobic and misogynist. Um, the alt-right definitely makes that quite central, and part of that is also that it, it draws um, members and supporters from many different backgrounds. We, we find that, and, and Simon Murdoch has done quite a lot of research on, in this field, how misogyny and sexism is um, often uh, a starting point for many of these people. Um, it's something that is slightly uh, easily ac more accessible. Um, people could start with that and then build um, more conspiratorial, um, uh, more violent, um, ideological um, ideas on that, while on the inside or, or kind of um, on, on the internet. There's some really interesting articles in the book about gender, the manosphere essentially, this kind of, again, another disparate movement which works within the orbit of the alt-right, which has, you know, extremely chauvinist, and it has all these kind of endlessly peculiar and strange little subsections, incels, which many people have read about, involuntary celibates, MGTOWs, men who go their own way. and. Um, What's really worrying actually, even since we started writing the book and then we submitted it to the publisher is there was quite a few sections in it which were generally speaking when we were writing them, very niche and strange little subcultural yeah. movements. Um, and in the last year, we've seen a number of terrorist attacks around the world where these individuals, individuals have subscribed to these very peculiar ideas. Yeah. And we've seen a, a wave of kind of terrorist attacks with people that were linked to incel communities. We've seen, uh, you know, we've seen the Poway Synagogue attack. We've seen the, uh, you know, the Tree of Life Synagogue attack. We've seen El Paso. We've seen Christchurch, um, which was kind of tied into identitarianism, which is also covered in this book. And this is a movement that, let's be frank, is is killing people. Right? And it's not just um, kind of online strange subcultures full of weirdos saying horrible things. This is a movement that, in the last five years has gone from online to offline, and the way it's gone offline has often been mass murder. And the most famous, probably, case we've seen of this was, of course, Charlottesville, which in many ways was the high point, and in some ways the end point, if you will, of the alt-right. You were in Charlottesville. Mm. Um, 
uh, we kind of start the book with Charlottesville and finish it with that in some ways because it's such a central moment in this movement where you Unite the Right, as it was called, this movement came offline and tried to tell us. But tell us a little bit about that day because you were actually there and the, there was obviously journalists there on the day outside, but you were, of course, on, on the actual event with the people from the alt-right. So tell us a few bits. What was it like? What did you see? No, but I, I just want to kind of um, hold on to that point about like, these other prejudices outside of racism as well, is that we define the alt-right and it's not just white identity, it's white male identity. Uh, and when you look at it from that way, uh, kind of threats to um, classes, classic masculine, traditional masculinity, um, de then misogyny and kind of homophobia fits quite well in there. So it's important to, to include that bit in, in, in how it sees its problem. I actually think it's that it's, what, it's, a far, it's an example of a far-right movement where in many cases I think its attitude to women and gender is just as important, and masculinity, is just as important to his attitude to race. It's, it's, um, it's not just to kind of weigh into the alt-right. In some ways, for a lot of the sub subcultures within the alt-right, it is just as important, and in some cultures it, it's, it's more important. Which is, which is, you know, there's always been a misogyny within the far right, of course, but it's so central to understanding the alt-right that you cannot understand it without delving into that politics. Absolutely, absolutely. And about Charlottesville, of course it was um, an awful day in many ways. Um, it scared me. Uh, I um, had been inside far groups for, for quite a long time, and this came just towards the end of my infiltration. Um, so, so in some ways I was quite comfortable in these spaces. I had uh, learned how to move in them and how to express myself and how to fit in essentially, which is a scary a side point. Um, but Charlottesville, um, I think that was one of the first times where, where I got the most scared. Um, really scared of what this movement could do. Um, People there um, were so motivated. People had traveled from all over North America. Uh, some people had never But also been. all over the world, there was Europeans there. There were a few Europeans as well. Uh, but those were kind of dedicated activists who were quite public from the beginning. I saw Swedes there who I, who I know from, from other uh, far-right um, situations. Uh, but some of the people that came from North America, they had never been to a protest before. They hadn't. They'd, they had never engaged actively with the alt-right or any far-right idea outside of their computer. But Charlottesville made them uh, travel, uh, it made them spend money, uh, quite a bit of money, to get to this quite little protest and express extreme ideas. People there, um, some of the worst things I heard, um, which often weren't really reported, um, what was what often heard in media was about um, the slogan, they will not replace us, or Jews will not replace us. But in, in other parts of the protest, pe people talked about bathing in the blood of different minority groups. It was incredibly extreme. Um, and of course, there was the weapons. Um, it was just kind of the, 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 the very intense um, feeling among them that, that taking up arms was useful. And there were at some point uh, when, when they tried to close the demonstration down, there were people there who wanted to oppose um, the security forces. I mean, it, I mean, it's obviously a horrendous day. Heather Heyer was, was killed that day when someone from the protest drove a car into a group of anti-fascists and, and killed, killed her. 
Um, he's gone to prison for a very, very long time, thankfully. In some ways, that's the defining moment of the alt-right that day in Charlottesville. It was its biggest, most high-profile moment. Um, in some ways, it was kind of the end of the movement as we understood it in a cohesive sense. It was called Unite the Right. It was, there was an understanding that this was a disparate, spread-out movement of blogs, individuals, organisations all over the world, and they wanted to kind of formulate into some sort of structured movement. And for a period, there was a thing called the Alt-Right Corporation, um, which was launched in Sweden. I remember going to that event in Sweden. Um, it was called the Identitarian Ideas Conference. And Jason Giorgiani came over and he launched this mo new movement in Sweden, which was interesting, not in America, saying, you know, we've brought the movement together. And then we had Charlottesville, which was we've brought the movement together. And then, of course, after that, you start to see things unravel. It was a, you see a societal backlash. Um, you see tech companies start to step up. Finally, after years of people like us telling them to do more, they started to say, actually, this is... You saw companies getting involved. But, of course, on the days following, Donald Trump did not do enough. Donald Trump turns around and, and almost defended, in some ways, those people on the far right of that event and did not come out and condemn it fast enough. But the movement then splits and re-splinters. And I think some people have thought that the result of it is that the alt-right then died or ended on that day in Charlottesville. I actually think it was always a disparate movement that came together briefly in a more formalized, structured sense. And now it's gone back to previously where it was, which is an online culture. And actually, we've got a number of things. We've got the big State of Hate report coming out, our yearly report in the hope for Hope Not Hate coming out very soon. And a lot of the individuals we look at in this that were kind of in that alt-right milieu, they're still getting tens of thousands of views. They're still producing new content. Very few of these people have gone anywhere, hundreds of thousands in some cases, in some cases, in fact, millions of views and, and view, like people looking at their content. So I think the alt-right hasn't disappeared as such. It's just maybe less people are calling themselves alt-right, less people are working together under that specific banner, partly because it will forever be indelibly tied to those events at Charlottesville. Yeah, I mean, it, it divided the movement a lot. Some people wanted not to associate with it because of the cost that came with it, because some some parts of society started taking it a bit more seriously, um, thankfully. Uh, not enough still, but um, it, it came with a higher cost all of a sudden. Um, but I think, like you say, it's, it's equally active now, if not more. We see more conferences happening across Europe, um, Scandinavia, the UK, um, they happen almost every month now and they bring people from all over the world still um, and we've had um, protests in, in the US still, they still happen and they still bring uh, quite, quite decent crowds. And, and yeah, and, and as well as that I guess we've seen a mainstreaming of some or normalization of some of these ideas that we thought were kind of beyond the pale a little bit. I mean, we talked a bit earlier about Zabisky, this government advisor, who we were looking at as a research team and seeing that, you know, yes, he'd said horrendous things about eugenics and, and all things, but we were looking at where they were coming from. And part of the time, having spent years looking at these weird online spaces, you start to recognize the names and the blogs. And, and it became clear to us that actually there was, he was certainly looking at content which comes out something called the neo-reactionary movement which is something we talk about quite a lot of depth in this book as well. There's a chapter that myself and Simon Murdoch wrote which attempts to define this movement, this strange kind of neo camerist monarchist, uh, you know, you name it, it's, it's a very kind of hodgepodge ideology. Um, and when I remember writing that with Simon, we were very interested because it was very obscure and it believes in this kind of individual states, competing states, and there's kind of, there's, they're, they're often racial based and a really very strange little kind of niche online culture that had only really gained a bit of prominence in some Silicon Valley 
corners because of this tech utopianism that's tied into it. And here we had an individual that was essentially working as an advisor for 10 Downing Street, propagating some of these same ideas. And I, even when we submitted the book, I remember the publisher saying to that chapter, very interesting, but push it further down the book because it's so strange and so obscure, you know, you know, but now, of course, it's actually kind of someone who was in, in, in government for a little bit. So this is one of the really worrying things I guess we should finish on is, is that a lot of the ideas, the movement is obviously dissipated and it's not as united as it once was. But in some ways, it's become more normal. and It's become more normalized and mainstreamed over the last uh, couple of years, which is extremely worrying. So I guess we should maybe wrap it up here. Um, uh, for those of you who are interested in the book, it's called The International Alt-Right. Um, fascism for the 21st century. It's written by myself, Patrick, uh, David Lawrence, and Simon Murdoch. It's out in some good bookshops. It's available, you know, it's on Amazon. It's, it should be sooner. Hopefully available on the Hope Not Hate website. Please do get a copy and have a read. And it's kind of a culmination of a lot of our work as a research team over the last five, six years. Um, but thanks again for listening to the Hope Not Hate podcast as ever. Um, follow us on social media accounts. I'm always told I have to tell you to look at our social media accounts. And also, uh, none of this happens uh, for free. So if you do have a spare couple of quid, we have the Hope Action Fund, um, which I'm always told to plug, which I spend you know, constantly plugging, which I'm very happy to, because um, it funds a huge amount of our work. So yeah. please have a look at that. And subscribe and leave all the usual stuff. This podcast is available all over the place. Uh, and give it to a friend and, and tell them to have a listen if they're interested in depressing, far-right, weird stuff. Um, but thank you very much for listening, and we will see you next time on the Hope Not Hate podcast.